Well, as we come to Matthew 15, we come to a section that's still embedded in this idea of the Pharisees rejecting Jesus as the Savior. Now, history shows that people will often try horribly wrong treatments to solve their problems. Some of these treatments are almost laughable, while others are downright tragic. Here are some examples. In the 1890s, people turned to cocaine to cure their alcoholism. Terribly bad treatment for a real problem. Around the same time period, people believed that heroin was the ideal treatment for a cough. Later in the 1930s, if you were struggling with depression or some other mental malady, no problem, just come into the doctor and get a lobotomy. Literally shoving an iron stick into your brain and wiggling it around, seeing if that fixes the problem. That's equivalent in the medical field. That's equivalent to a mechanic taking his wrench and banging on the engine, right? I mean, that's essentially what a lobotomy was. And those are just a few examples of bad treatments for real problems. I mean, we could add shock treatments, snake oils, who remembers FinFin back in the 1990s, and various others that could be added to the list of bad treatments. In all these things, we find two commonalities. They were all expensive and costly. And second, they were all ineffective to solve the underlying problem. In fact, they often led to more severe problems after the treatment than before. Well, there's another ineffective treatment that many of us, some of us in this room, some of us this last week, some of us today, right now, have been turning to, to try to solve the problem that is in our hearts. We have turned to legalism. We have turned to a bad treatment to solve a relatively real issue. These treatments that we just listed, we're all seeking to solve real problems like alcoholism, a cough, obesity, depression, and so on. And so also our legalism is seeking to solve the real problem. That is, we know inherently inside of us that we are unclean before God. We can feel the guilt that resides within We know that we need to be washed. So the question is, is how can one wash away the grime of sin? How can we wash away the stains of guilt? How do we get rid of the filth of our habits and our addictions? Now, the hoodwinkers who sell legalism claim that with the right set of rules, a person can magically wash away all stains better than OxyClean on an infomercial. Now, the problem is that just like all these other bad treatments, legalism has proven costly and tragically effective. People apply the list of rules. They apply the the self-made list of righteousness, and yet it still does nothing to wipe away the stains of sin. And those who turn to legalism as a solution are often left spiritually bankrupt and near dead. Now we come to Matthew 15, 1 through 20, and here Jesus blows the whistle and addresses the fraudulent claims of legalists. Like a doctor who truly cares about his patients, to whom he ministers, Jesus wants all to know that legalism is a false and ineffective treatment for an unclean heart. So in this this sermon, we're going to consider three important points that Matthew 15 makes about legalism. So in this time, we're just going to focus in on what is legalism, 
why is it bad? Why is it bad treatment? And why Jesus is the answer to the heart problem that we have. Now, since legalism is going to take up a large portion of our discussion, I think it's important to describe what it is or actually have some kind of working definition of what it is. Because tragically in our day, when we tend to use the term legalism, we typically use it in context of just whatever we disagree with, right? So-and-so says fried chicken is bad for you. Well, I like fried chicken. They're just a legalist. That's typically how we use the term legalism. But the Bible doesn't have such a superficial definition of legalism. In scripture, legalism, which can also be described as Pharisaism, is looking to external things to bring about internal purity. It is looking to external things to bring about internal purity. It is doing or avoiding certain things in hopes that one will become righteous or at a minimal will feel confident in their relationship with God. I think we've all seen this in a number of ways in church history. And the list would be too long for us to cite all the examples. However, I think we can think of a few examples from our own generation, right? Christians have defined holiness as staying away from those who drink, defriending those who cuss, abstaining from anything remotely above a PG rating, And the thought is, is that by removing ourselves from these things, we will become pure or possibly maintain our purity and hence the fallacy of legalism. In this, we show our ignorance. In this, we show that we have failed to see that it's not the alcohol. It's not the people's choice of language. It's no external surroundings or even a movie that makes us impure. The impurity lies within already. And even if we stayed away from these things, our impurity would be displayed in other ways. One can stay away from alcohol their entire life and still be just as addicted to the wine of accolade. One can stay away from every movie rated above PG-13 and still have a private motel room in their mind undressing women that they see. Staying away from external things doesn't keep you from being impure because external things don't make you unclean. You are unclean from within. The fallacy of legalism flips it on its head. It wrongly claims that one is clean or unclean because of the things one does or does not do. The gospel, on the other hand, argues that the heart simply cannot be cleansed by external things. The heart must be cleansed by Christ or it will remain defiled. It is as Paul says in Colossians 2 about the legalistic regulations of not handling, not tasting, not touching certain things. He argues all these rules indeed have an appearance of wisdom. They look wise in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, add what rules you want, and it still will be ineffective in changing one's sinful nature. You can make whatever list of do's and don'ts that you want. You can stay away from whatever things that you want to do. You can create any kind of self-made discipline and it still will do nothing to change the heart nature that is absolutely sinful. Now, does this mean that there's no room for a holy life whatsoever? Well, absolutely not. 
there's a fine difference between holiness and legalism. And I think it's important for us to understand this difference before we jump into what Matthew 15 says about legalism. Holiness is internal purity working its way out to our actions. Legalism, on the other hand, is external actions trying to bring about internal purity. Do you see the difference? Holiness is what's already inside the internal purity that Jesus has made, working its way out. Legalism is trying to do outside things to bring internal purity. Holiness is a testimony and a consequence of Jesus's cleansing power. Legalism, on the other hand, seeks a cleansing that is utterly independent of Christ. Here's how the difference is applied. Holiness says, I'm not going to watch filth or get drunk because Christ has made me clean. Legalism argues, I'm clean because I don't watch filth or get drunk. In the first instance, cleanness is seen as the result of Christ's righteousness. He has washed me, therefore I'm clean. And because I'm clean, that will have ramifications for how I live. In the second instance, cleanliness is viewed as the cause of righteousness. I do these certain things. I don't do these certain things. Therefore, I'm righteous. It's the difference between a cause and effect. So legalism is is getting those two things mixed up, the cause and effect. The gospel says that we are clean because of Christ and Christ alone, in faith alone, by grace alone, for God's glory alone. That's what the gospel says. Legalism says that you are clean because of what you do, what you don't do, what you stay away from, what you argue is righteous and not righteous. So here's the question that we're going to be asking as we approach this text. Are we seeking a cleansing that comes only in Christ? Or are we wrongly pursuing a cleansing that comes from other things? Are you righteous today? Are you clean, washed today because of the way you voted? Or because of the, what you said to your family member during Thanksgiving that you can't seem to stand? Or because of what you choose to watch on television and what you choose not to watch, whether you choose to have an alcohol cabinet or you don't have a wine cellar? Or are you clean because you have believed in Christ? My friends, my hope is that we will all see the danger of legalism. We all are tempted to drift in this way. We are all tempted to misunderstand how it is that we've been made clean before God. How often do we as Christians that quickly forget that we are clean because Christ has made us clean? And the way we live then is not lived in obligation right? It's not lived in this legal weight of having to do the right things. It's lived in thanksgiving. It's lived in praise and in worship. We're clean. Therefore, we live clean as a praise and worship to God versus the legalism that has you so strapped and oppressed and tired and weary and broken. That legalism that you did these check boxes, you marked them, you did them. Good job. But these ones are left undone and therefore you're not good enough. How often do we as Christians drift into that kind of mindset? How often do we apply it to others? We've been made clean by Christ, but that person's unclean because they watch R-rated movies. 
We've been cleaned by Christ, but that person's unclean because they're a Democrat. How often do we tend to drift in that way? My friends, my hope is, is that we, by and large, as a church, will remember that it's cleansing only in Christ that makes one clean and nothing else. We come now to the first point about legalism. Legalism makes God's word void. Legalism makes God's word void. Matthew 15 opens up with a confrontation. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Now that's about 60 or 70 miles away from where Jesus is in this text. And said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, 60 or 70 miles is a long way to walk just to challenge someone with a, with a, with a question. But the Pharisees believed that they had just the question to undermine Jesus' ministry. They've been seeking to destroy him from very early on, but now they're just going to settle for maybe destroying his reputation. His disciples, here's the key kicker, right? This is the, this is the, the damning evidence. His disciples, his followers do not wash their hands before they eat. A truly scandalous accusation. Now, I think we need to understand what they're accusing them of before we chuckle at it. When the Pharisees talk of washing hands, they are not talking about mere hygiene. This isn't the CDC watching you as you wash your hands before you, know, you eat so you don't get COVID. This isn't a hygiene issue. This is a ritual purity issue. As has been mentioned before in our study of Matthew, the Pharisees followed and taught an additional set of laws known as the halakha, which the Pharisees describe here as the tradition of the elders. These additional laws were said to be the oral Torah. These are the things that God said on Mount Sinai, but never really got written. That sounds like a fin-fin cell if I've ever heard of one. These are the things that haven't been medically proven, but trust me, they work. Well, here the Pharisees are going, these are the things that God said that you should do, but they never got written and they got passed down. And so it actually became on the level of the law. And so they had these rules like you can walk so far on the Sabbath day and no further or else it's work. You can carry your bed in a certain way on the Sabbath day. Otherwise, if you carry it in a different way, it's work. And now here we have the the law of uh, the one, a law that's called Mayim Rishonim, first waters, which describes how one's to wash their hands in purity. And so, I mean, the details are laid out in the Mishnah of this, where it's even told you dip your fingertips in and then you hold them like this. Because if you hold them like this, the impure waters run down your arm and then you're impure. Instead, you've got to dip your fingers and let them drip dry here while saying a blessing, and you've got to do it in a certain way, and then you've got to do it again after dinner and hold them a different way after dinner. This is what we're describing here when we talk about washing hands. The law sought to prevent a person from inadvertently putting anything unclean into their mouth and thereby becoming unclean. If your hands had touched an unclean person, this was meant to wash away the uncleanness so that when your unclean hands had touched an unclean person, touched the food, the food becomes unclean and then you're soul becomes unclean. And so this washing sought to keep you clean. That being said, the gist of the Pharisees accusations is that Jesus' followers are impure. They're unclean. 
they do not have a right relationship with God. And if Jesus' followers are impure, if Jesus' followers are unclean, then perchance Jesus is unclean. Jesus is impure. Now, as Jesus frequently does when he addresses the Pharisees, he doesn't choose to squabble over their traditions. He doesn't say, okay, now, fellas, this is why picking the grain heads is not considered work. He doesn't, he doesn't do it like that, right? He doesn't tell them, look, fellas, they might not have washed, but Peter spit-shined his hands way back there um, in, in Galilee. He doesn't argue about the traditions of men. He doesn't get into some legal squabble that way. Instead, he takes it to a higher level. He takes it to the written word of God itself, to the commands of God. The Pharisees say that Jesus' disciples have broken the traditions of the elders, men. But Jesus shows how the Pharisees have broken the commands of God, which is far worse. If anyone is impure and in danger of God's judgment, it is these religious elite, not these dirty fishermen. That's the great reversal principle working here. Jesus addresses them saying, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? This is a not so subtle implication that the Pharisees have cared more about the traditions, more about the words of man handed down to them by man than they, than they care about the commands that God has handed down to them. They care more about following this oral Torah, this make-believe, pretend list of righteousness, and they care about the actual written word of God that has been written and commanded by God himself. Their concern is to obey the traditions of man, and by their being concerned by obeying the traditions of man, they end up disobeying the commands of God. Such is the reality of our legalistic tendencies. In all outward appearances, we look righteous. We do the things that others agree are good and avoid the things that others agree are bad. Think about how often we make lifestyle choices just based off of what people say is good or bad. What we choose to stay away from, what we choose to do, just based off of what other people say. And yet, in all of our doing and avoiding, I sometimes wonder how often we have failed to obey the real commands of God, such as loving others as Christ loved us. True, we might avoid all the things that people say we are, that, that are sinister and suspicious and unclean and bad for you. But still, if we do not obey the basic commands, like being loving, kind, merciful, humble then we are showing that we are still inherently unclean, regardless of what we stay away from. The Pharisees were masters at keeping the commands of men, but their mastery of men's laws led them to transgress God's law. Truly honoring the Lord requires a heart that is concerned with God's commands over a concern to meet all the check boxes of men. Let me just ask you today, what is your greatest concern? That you're living in the way that everybody else says that you should live, or that you're living in the way that God has commanded you to live? If doing and avoiding all the things that people say I should do or avoid leads me to a lack of love or humility, then my doing and avoiding shows just how hypocritical and sinful I really am. Just as it did for the Pharisees. Now, Jesus gives us an example. 
For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. I mean, there's a penalty attached to dishonoring father and mother and a severe penalty at that. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. It's Gorban is what they used to call it. He need not honor his father. Now in those days, there was no such thing as social security. It was non-existent, right? So your social security was your children whose job and obligation it was to honor their father and mother. And one of the ways they honored their father and mother was by taking care of them when they got old, by providing for their needs. That was how God commanded them to do it. The Pharisees, however, provided a back door. We know what God has said, but there's a way that you don't have to apply that. If someone tied the money that would have gone to their parents, then he has no need to provide for them. I mean, how great of, of a backdoor is that for those of you that don't like your mother-in-law, right? I mean, this, this was a chance to get out of having to provide for that cranky old mother-in-law that you don't like. I love my mother-in-law. I would always provide for her. But for you who don't like your mother-in-law... This was a backdoor to have to get out of that. Just simply walk up to the woman who's driven you crazy all, all your life and say, you know what? What I would have given you is given to God. <laughs> and it's a win-win situation. You don't have to provide for that mother-in-law. And at the same time, you look godly. Everybody else is left saying, look at how much that man tides. He, he must really love the Lord. And yet the irony in this back door is that it was neither loving one's parents or loving the Lord. That which looked obedient, this is super important for us to understand. That which often looks obedient to men may very well be disobedience in the eyes of God. Consider how we might commit the same kind of hypocrisies today. In the name of providing for our families, do we tend to overwork and neglect our wives and children? In the name of discipling our children, do our mothers lose their patience and forget to show mercy and love and model forgiveness? In the name of standing for the right policies, do we fail to keep our calling to speak in kindness to others who disagree? Do we read our Bibles daily all for the one intent of proudly being able to tell our Bible study that we read our Bibles daily? I wonder sometimes if our pragmatism that seems so simple to us and to others, this is just the way it needs to be. When we test it against the metal of God's word, do we change it? Do we change our pragmatism? It's so simple. It looks right. But when we look at it from God's word, from the standpoint of God's word, it is practical rebellion. I know that scripture has told me to love so-and-so, but they believe in da-da-da-da-da. And so for the sake of looking like we're being zealous for God's word, looking like we're zealous for godliness, looking like we're zealous for the gospel, we disobey God's word. We fail to apply the gospel. That's hypocrisy. I 
I know I'm called to love and pray for my neighbor, but let me gossip about him first on the way to getting there. My friends, we do that kind of stuff all the time. We make void the word of God in one way, saying that we're keeping the word of God in another way. Now, if you're in our house, you hear us say this all the time. Half obedience is still disobedience. If you're carrying out the trash and you knock down sissy with the bag on the way out intentionally, it's still sin. You still get punished. If the floor of your room looks clean, but then we go in and it's all stacked up in the closet behind your clothes, your room's still unclean. Half obedience, you parents are nudging your kids. Half obedience, somewhat obedience. Guess what? It's still disobedience if it's not obedient in all things. My friends, you might have the right policies. You might be right in the fact that you're called to provide for your family. You might be right in the fact that you do have to discipline. In fact, in all those things, you are addressing real issues. But are you creating bad solutions to these issues? Are you negating one part of the word of God in order to do this other part of the word of God? My friends, Christian obedience doesn't work that way. Christian obedience doesn't say, stand for the truth, and if you have to, be unloving. Christian obedience says stand for the truth and be loving. Be gentle with one's opponents. Isn't that what it says in 2 Timothy? It doesn't say love your wife until she drives you crazy and finally gives you a reason to divorce her. No, it says love your wife as Christ loved the church. That means even when she doesn't love you the way that you think you should be loved, you still love her like Christ loved the church. Full obedience requires accepting the whole word of God. And what the Pharisees were teaching might have sounded like godliness. I mean, they were giving it all to the Lord. And yet, they were still doing something inherently wicked and therefore condemnable. They were still negating the word of God. As one commentator says, they dared to say that the word of God was actually unlawful. That's what the word void, it's a legal term, to make void. They were actually saying that to do the word of God in this case, to obey the command of God, was unlawful. That's legalism at its heart. Swapping legal systems. Swapping the law of God for a law of man. In the same way, making God's word for any reason in our lives, for any reason, it's still a rejection of his word. I speak as someone who's done that this very week. Who's done things out of good intentions, godly intentions, but did them in such a way that God would not have me to do them. That's still legalistic rebellion. That's still making void the word of God and feeling good about myself while I'm at it. Well, you know, yeah, sure, I didn't do it the way I should have, but I did it for the right heart, for the right purposes. Friends, don't make void the word of God. The second point that Matthew 15 makes about legalism is this. And this is probably, I think, one of the the most important points that it makes. Legalism is idolatry cloaked in religious or moral superiority. Superiority. Legalism is idolatry cloaked 
Just think about that. It's an idol that's garbed, covered in religious or moral superiority. Jesus labels the Pharisees as hypocrites, which means that they were being pretenders, posers, play actors. They might have had something that looked like righteousness, but in the end, it was only play righteousness. It's nothing more than the plastic cheesecake that my daughter bakes in her little toy kitchen. It doesn't taste good. Okay, it might look like cheesecake. It's still plastic. Believe me, try as I might, it doesn't taste like cheesecake. The same way they have this pretend righteousness that looks like righteousness, but it's plastic righteousness. It's fake righteousness, pseudo righteousness. It just wasn't real. He quotes Isaiah 29 to them saying, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? Can you imagine saying this to the Pharisees? Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now in context, Isaiah 29 is an indictment against those who turn things upside down, as you see in Isaiah 29, 16. Hypocrites who call good what God has called evil, who call evil what God has called good. They arrogantly teach their own doctrines as if they were the commandments of God himself, even knowing that their own doctrines were inherently sinful. Such people seem to be righteous. They sacrifice, they sing, they, uh, they attend the offerings and whatnot. But in reality, their heart is far from God. They attend the temple. They're faithful. They come every single day. They contribute. They give their daily temple tax. They sing, they say the prayers, they honor the priest, and yet their heart is still far from God. Their worship is meaningless. And what's worse is they have hidden the truth of God. And as a con consequence, Isaiah says that God will hide the truth from them. He says in Isaiah 29, 14, the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. And the discernment, that word discernment can actually mean sight. And the sight of their seeing men shall be hidden. Quite literally, God will make them blind. In their arrogance, they have made their own list of righteousness, their own rules, their own law. And as a result, they have blinded others with the teaching of legalism. And now they will be blinded. They will not be able to see who, who it is that truly makes them righteous. Now, I think in quoting this, Jesus is subtly pointing to what he's about to say about these Pharisees being blind. In verse 10, Jesus shifts from addressing the Pharisees to addressing the crowds. Now, if, if you know, a delegation of Jerusalem Pharisees would have come to hunt you down to ask you a question, it would have naturally drawn a crowd. And so Jesus wants to now turn and talk to everybody. Fine, a crowd's come. Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And in this, Jesus is directly contradicting the teaching of the Pharisees. They believe that a person could be unclean simply by brushing up against an unclean person. They wouldn't walk in the crowds just out of fear that someone unclean might happen to brush up against them. They believe that if you put unwashed hands into your mouth, you suddenly became unclean. If you did certain things and you would suddenly become unclean. And yet Jesus flips that on its head and says, it's nothing outside of you that makes you unclean. What you put in your mouth doesn't make you unclean. 
what comes out of a person. Now, the disciples were astounded because people typically did not debate with the Pharisees, and yet Jesus had downright offended them. But Jesus wasn't so concerned. This was the Son of God talking to these religious elites who were blind and teaching other blind people. They had the wrong view of holiness, and their teachings were harmful to others. And so Jesus warns this, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Leave them alone. We'll talk about why that's serious here in a minute. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Now in this analogy, Jesus presents the father as the master gardener. In the end, only the plants that he has planted will remain. All the other plants will be uprooted. And I can't help but think that Jesus is probably alluding to that parable of the weeds and the wheat that he just mentioned in Matthew 13 where he talked about the weeds that were scattered among the wheat to let them grow together. And then at the end of the time, they would, he would pull up. The angels would pull up the weeds. Well, here the Pharisees are those weeds. They will be uprooted in the end because of their hypocritical blindness, because of the way that they had thought about making themselves clean. They made themselves judges and authorities over others, and yet they will be the ones who are judged by the ultimate authority. The words, leave them alone, are alarming. If you go back into the Old Testament scriptures, whenever God says, leave them alone, it typically is a final condemnation, a, defined, a definitive handing over to one's sin. So take Hosea chapter 4, 17, for example. God passes judgment on Ephraim. It says this, Ephraim's joined to idols. Leave him alone. That's a strange text, isn't it? Ephraim's worshiping idols. Let him do it. God handing people over to their own death, the own consequences of their own sins. The wages of sin is death, right? So when God says, leave them alone, he's basically saying, hand them over. Let them have it then. Now, I think here what he's doing is he's alluding to that text, showing that the Pharisees have made an idol of their own traditions. Their own righteous rules have become their God. They worship them. They observe them. They hold to them, cling to them more than they cling to the word of God. That's idolatry. Therefore, leave them alone. Such is the danger of seeking purity from external rituals and rules. Now in this, Matthew, I think is warning us. If we are those who, like the Pharisees, seek external things to make us inwardly pure, my friends, we are committing idolatry. Legalism is pretend righteousness. is idolatry cloaked in religiosity. And ultimately, it will lead to judgment. So the question is, is, are we idolatrous? Are we practicing idolatry while it's cloaked in all the religious jargon? Now, the third and final point that Matthew 15 teaches us about legalism is that it misunderstands the root issue. Uncleanness doesn't come from unclean surroundings, unclean people, or unclean hands. Uncleanness comes from an unclean heart. In verse 15, Peter asked for an explanation of the parable, which I think he's Referring back to verse 11, where Jesus talks about the things that go into or out of a person. 
And after pointing out the disciples' somewhat slowness in understanding his teaching, Jesus explains, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Now, I'm not going to explain the first half of that passage because it's fairly self-explanatory. And we have grade school boys in here. But Jesus is simply saying, when you eat, it's just food. It has no power to make your heart unclean. Instead, the uncleanness that's around us comes from within us. It doesn't, it's not put into us. Now his teaching goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Most of you who have read the, through the Bible this year know that about the time you get to Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, you begin to get this long list of things that are clean and unclean. God says, stay away from the unclean things and stay with the clean things and you'll be clean, Right? That's not what happens, though. Even with with a list of clean and unclean things, Israel's failures betray the truth. It's not what they eat. It's not who they hang out with. It's not what they wear that makes them unclean. Their hearts are already unclean. It's virtually like God saying, let me take away everything around you you think might make you unclean, and we'll see where the uncleanness comes from. A person might refrain from eating pork, might remain separated from all other unclean people like lepers and sinners, might observe all the right sacrifices, say all the right prayers, and still be internally unclean before God. I mean, you read the story of Noah, you have a washed world. All the sinners are gone except for Noah. The only thing that remains of the old world, the pre-flood world, was Noah's sinful heart. So surely the wickedness of the world comes from all these other bad people that God just washed away, right? No, because immediately after the flood in this new creation, this new washed world, guess where wickedness comes from? Noah's sinful heart. He ends up shamefully naked and exposed just like Adam. My friends, externally keeping to a list of cleaner, unclean things cannot make you internally clean. If God were to wash the world again, blot out all the things that you think bring out the worst in you. If there was nothing left in this world but you, the world would fall into depravity all over again. If I were to tell you to choose the top 10 most righteous people that you know and go plant a new civilization in some unfound island, that civilization would be fallen the first day that you step foot on soil. Because uncleanness and unrighteousness is not an external problem. It's an internal problem. It's a heart problem. Hence the reason why the Old Testament so often speaks about the need for a new heart. I mean, you just look at all the instances, Ezekiel eleven nineteen, Ezekiel 36, 26, Jeremiah 31, 33. The whole point of these texts is to show you that what you need is not a new list of rules. You need a new heart. The Pharisees failed to learn this lesson. They went on to promote these additional rules in an attempt to gain inward purity. They clung to external actions like ritual hand washing in hopes that they and others would be made internally clean. Because of this, they failed to see that Jesus 
had come to make them clean. They failed to see the beauty of the gospel, which offers washed hearts, not just washed hands, not just clean food, but a clean heart. It is not the internet that makes you unclean. It is your unclean heart that turns the internet into a venue for sexual immorality. Simply throwing out your computer will not keep you from lust. It is not one's neighbors that makes someone think evil thoughts. It's one's heart that turns her neighbor into the object of an already existing internal evil. They could move to a new neighborhood, and guess what happens? New evil thoughts come. There's new neighbors to hate now. And it applies to our view of the world. Let's just, let's just pretend for a moment. If every country in the world tonight changed all of its policies, if all the nations internationally agreed to hold to some basically good morality, and everyone on the planet returned to a common decency, do you know what the result would be? All humanity would still stand with the stains of their sin in their hearts, clearly apparent before God. That's the reality. Because unrighteousness isn't a policy issue. Unrighteousness is not a government issue. It's not a legal issue. It's a heart issue. So if doing things on the outside doesn't clean the heart within, what then? If we cannot find cleansing in what we do or what we don't do, then where can we find it? This is where we get to the good news of the gospel. Cleansing's not an action. Cleanse, your clean heart doesn't come from a list of doing the right things. A clean heart comes from a person. Ritual waters may not sufficiently wash you, but the blood of Christ can. Jesus took our place. He died for all the sins that flowed from our hearts. All this list that he mentions the murder, the envy, the evil thoughts, the covetousness, the, the sexual immorality, the blasphemies against others, all those things he took on himself. He took upon him the uncleanness, the blemishes, the stains, the smudges, the dirtiness that you know about yourself and the dirtiness that you don't even know about yourself, the unseen dust bunnies in your spiritual life, the unseen stains that you haven't yet identified. He took all of those out of us flowed nothing but rebellion, but out of him flowed nothing but righteousness. And he died. He, like every other unclean person was driven out of the camp. He, like those who were cursed of God was nailed to a cross. And he, like those who stand in stains before God took the wrath of God. He was buried and he rose again. And it is only his actions that bring about a clean heart. Christian, if you're here and you believe in Jesus, we need to do only one thing. Glory in the one who washed us. Stop thinking that you stay clean or maintain cleanliness based on what you do or don't do. Stop making fake lists of righteousness. Stop making a list of rules. Hebrews 10 tells us exactly what we should do. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. 
with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. To be a gospel-centered people is to be a people who have hope in no one else but Christ. Who know that washing, that clean hearts, that the stains of sin being washed away comes from nowhere else but the grace of God in our Savior. For those of you who don't know Jesus, wash as you might, try to be as good of a person as you might, create some kind of list of morality, do all the right things in your heart, is still filthy before the Lord. It is only because of Christ, only by trusting in Him. And my hope is that believers and non-believers alike, because of the ministry of our church, because of the preaching of the gospel, will come to the water, the real water that is in Jesus, and be washed. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you that we can't wash ourselves. Lord, and it's taken hard lessons to learn that. Lord, we strap on ourselves all kinds of rules and rituals and prayers and different things, Father, and yet nothing makes us clean. We scrub. We scrape. And yet we are only made white by the blood of Jesus. The invitation that you have given us, Father, is to come and reason with you and you will wash our scarlet garments and they will be white as snow. Father God, I pray that those of us who will be made clean today will stop thinking that we can maintain our cleanliness by external washing by cleaning up our lives, and that those of us that are still standing in the stains of sin, that we will put down the scrub brush of morality and legalism and being a decently good person and turn to Jesus alone. We pray this in your son's name.